Welcome to an earlier than usual edition of Tisky Sour. We're going live at 6 p.m. Um, so you have a chance to watch the football at 7 p.m. if you are so inclined. Um, lots of important stories for you tonight. Nurses going on strike. Elon Musk going really far right on the platform he now owns. And a pretty outrageous story about PPE and Michelle Moan. If you don't know who she is, you will know by the end of this evening. To guide me through all of these stories, I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? How excited are you about England versus the USA? I'm good. I'm very happy. I'm on, uh, I just want to say, Michael, if I'm particularly boring today, it's because I'm on day three of my no caffeine journey. <laughs> uh, stick a hashtag in there if you want. Uh, I, thought, but I, was I thought you were going to say uh, I'm, I'm on like Valium and codeine or something, but no, that's no, no caffeine. Yeah. That's fine. Similar, similar effects, but no, I was, uh, I was suitably boosted by watching Iran Wales earlier today. And I hope that, uh, England USA will keep me awake into the, uh, the later hours of Friday evening. Very good. Don't think any promises can be made. First story. Nurses in England, Northern Ireland and Wales are going on strike in the biggest walkout in the history of the NHS. General Secretary of the Royal College of Nurses, Pat Cullen, appeared on BBC Breakfast to explain why. Not a single nurse that is coming on duty as we speak or trying to put petrol into their car to go and visit their patients in the community uh, that wants to be walking out on, on their patients. Uh, that's the first thing. So I have tried now for two weeks, multiple occasions, to get the uh, government at Westminster to listen to the voice of, of our members. Um, but that has fallen on deaf ears. And as a result, they have chosen, they have chosen strike over listening to our nursing staff. So unfortunately, we've been pushed to the position of having to um, issue two dates for strike um, right in the middle of December, when our nurses will stand on picket lines, losing a day's pay on both occasions and um, when they cannot afford it. But they will continue to do that to speak up for their patients. They will continue to do it until this government listens to them. And that's really unfortunate that every single government seems to be um, across the, well, with the exception of Scotland, um, seems to be turning their back on nursing staff at this point in time. You turn your back on nurses, you turn your back on patients. That was Pat Cullen, a very impressive speaker. In any case, those two days of industrial action will take place on the 15th and 20th of December. It will be the first time in the union's 106-year history that nurses have gone on strike across all three countries. In the meantime, Health Secretary Steve Barclay has refused to reopen talks with the union over pay. And Pat Cullen had this message for the government. If Mr Barclay wishes to meet with me and get round the table and stop the spin and start to speak, um, he can avert these strikes. But my door is wide open, night and day. I will make myself available, as will my team, on behalf of our nursing staff. That option isn't open to me at this point in time. And consequently, he has chosen strikes over speaking to me. The nurses' union is asking for a pay rise of 5% over inflation, measured by the retail price index, so around 17.6% in total. It sounds like a lot, but is it justified? This graph from the Health Foundation shows how NHS pay has changed since 2011. In real terms, nurses and health visitors are paid around £1,500 a year less than they were in 2011, and midwives have lost just under £2,000 a year. The context of any pay rise is a decade of pay cuts. But what will happen to patients during the strike? Here's Pat Cullen again, this time on BBC Radio 4's Today programme. 
services um, such as oncology uh, will be derogated or exempt from from any strike action. We have a number of services that we are working through at the minute um, that will be derogated um, on the day of strike. Um, and we will release the, um, that list soon um, to uh, employers. Well, if someone has been waiting for a hip replacement for 18 months and their operation is scheduled for that day, will a nurse be there? Now, so I just want to say back to you, uh, you listened to the BBC programme last night, 23,000 people in the NHS had to wait outside in ambulances for more than one hour at any time. And it said very clearly in the programme, it's leading to deaths. It showed our emergency departments actually bursting at the seams with ambulance staff having to come in and cohort patients on corridors to look after them because there weren't many beds for them to release those other ambulance staff to go out and collect more patients to bring them into those emergency departments. It also showed those nurses working 14-hour shifts under enormous pressure. No one is and suggesting, no one is and, and suggesting well. the nurses on don't work very and, hard. And seven, and, seven million, and seven million patients in England on waiting lists. Now, was any of that created by any of our nursing staff taking strike? Absolutely not, because nurses haven't taken strike in 106 years. They haven't created those waiting lists with those 7 million people waiting and languishing on those waiting lists. Absolutely not. I listened to that interview live on Radio 4. Very, very hostile interview from the host, asking all about whether this would damage patients' health. I I don't think there was even a question about why are you striking. I, I thought it was very odd to listen to, but very expertly answered um, there. Of course, part of the reason those waiting lists have built up is because poor paying conditions are driving nurses to leave the NHS. This graph from the BBC shows the change in the number of people leaving the NHS by year. You can see that the number leaving hovered at between 30 and 35,000 a year between 2011 and 2021. But in the last year, the number leaving has grown with 40,000 leaving. Now, it might look like those numbers are just being replaced by those joining, which is also up. 45,000 entered the NHS during the same period. But it's important to remember that many of the nurses leaving are highly experienced and more skilled. Presumably, people just getting into the job are going to be less so. It's also important to remember that given an ageing population, we need the overall number of nurses to be dramatically increasing all the time. We cannot afford to have as many people leaving the NHS as people joining it. The NHS, though, are struggling to recruit to fill that need. So this graph from the King's Fund shows that vacancies for nurses are at a record high with 46,000 posts unfilled in June this year. So you can see it's a record high and it's going up. Earlier today, I was joined by Dave Carr, a critical care nurse based in London. I started by asking him why he thinks now is the time for nurses to go on strike. When you've got an organisation like the Royal College of Nurses, 300,000 strong organisation of nurses with a 109-year history of never taking strike action, combine that with a mess that we've been left in post-COVID and, and, and you know, 12-odd years of Tory cuts, um, an erosion of pay. My pay's, I've lost 20% of my pay um, in, in real terms because of below inflation pay rises. A catastrophe in vacancies amongst nurses, 47,000 nurse vacancies across the NHS in England alone. We are going on strike, um, not just because of money in our pockets, but because 
of the sustainability of the NHS, our ability to, to, to actually deliver core services is being seriously compromised all the time now. And really, we need a pay rise to save the NHS. And can I get you to talk a bit about the, you know, your job at the moment, I suppose? Uh, what is it like to be a critical care nurse right now in 2022? Okay, so in critical care, Critical care is one of those environments where you have to have dedicated one-to-one nursing looking after these, some of the sickest patients there are in a hospital. And what it's like being a critical care nurse at the moment is extremely pressurised because our skill mix on all of our critical care areas across, across the country are diluted. So we haven't got the, um, skill, the amount of nurses we should have in post. A lot of those nurses are junior, which means they're under a huge amount of pressure. A huge amount of those nurses are exhausted post-COVID. We have a huge amount of nurses that are leaving the service because they are just utterly finished after COVID. And we can't always meet the requirements of nurses on the shop floor with the nurses that we actually have available to us to work. So it does mean that care is being compromised and our ability to deliver safe care is at risk all the time because of staff shortages and broken morale inside the NHS. And in critical care areas, that's just not acceptable. And I've been listening to a, you know, a number of, of interviews today with sort of representatives of nurses. And what's always put to you is, but you're going to make this worse. You know, by going on strike, we all recognise that the NHS is under pressure, but by going on strike, you're going to make this worse. How do you respond to that charge? I mean, I think it's, it's very difficult to, to make the situation in the NHS any worse than it is at the moment. The reality is that because of the crisis of staffing in the NHS and morale in the NHS, we're seeing a situation where people are dying in the backs of ambulances because they can't get treatment, because they, people can't get into hospitals. People can't get into hospitals because their social care system is collapsed. And we've got a third of patients in NHS hospitals now unable to be discharged because there's nowhere for them to go and no packages able to be delivered. We've got 7 million people waiting on waiting lists for non-urgent operations. And there's really no chance of clearing that backlog at the moment because of the shortages we're facing in nurses and the huge pressure there is on NHS services. We're already seeing cancer treatments delayed, uh, cancer diagnosis is pushed back, the inability of our, um, to get people into GP services. The reality is that what we're doing as nursing staff, and we didn't come into this to, uh, to go on strike, we come into this to look after the most vulnerable and sick people. And I'd, I'd say this to anyone listening in, we were trusted during the pandemic to look after people um, by the British public who were you know, close to death and often, you know, they needed the most intense care and the most intense um, looking after of any group of patients that I've ever looked after in my career. The public trusted us to do that. Well, I want the public to trust us now when I say that we are unable to deliver the NHS that people know because of the situation that we've been placed in by years and years and years of erosion in our pay and, and cuts in the service that we deliver. So we're not going to make it worse. I think we're going to hopefully wake people up to the reality that the NHS is broken and the only way we're going to fix it is value the staff at work inside it and start protecting it and funding it properly. I mean, how far would a pay rise get us in that respect? So there's two arguments. You know, do you deserve a pay rise? I don't think many of our audience are going to dispute that. But to what extent do you think if you win your demands here, that would actually solve some of the crises that the NHS is currently facing. So, you know, when I speak to nurses and why people are leaving the profession, you know, pay maybe comes into it, but more than that, it seems to be that people are overworked, that they're struggling mentally because they can't deliver the service properly because, you know, it, it's at 
capacity, essentially. I mean, if, if you win this pay rise, what other consequences would that have beyond, you know, you feeling a bit more valued? Well, I think value is, is really important. There's retention of staff, which is a key issue as well. I mean, and there's the, the ability of staff to actually work in central London and work in big cities where it's quite expensive, especially with the cost of living crisis. So we're expecting people to deliver a high quality of care and they, they, they're finding it difficult to, to actually, um, you know, make, make ends meet. I mean, there's been a survey done that shows that 14% of nurses are using food banks. So you can see how catastrophic that is. But in terms of fixing the NHS, I think this is, this is part of, of fixing the NHS. And this is us as health workers articulating the reality that we can't do the job any longer because we can't get people into the positions and keep them into the positions, whether they are new starters or whether they're people like myself that are the end of their careers. We can't keep people in, in those positions to deliver the care that's required and I think it opens up a whole debate about what kind of an NHS do we want and and what has happened to the NHS over the last 15 years so it's reached such a situation I and mean, it really is a mess it's a mess across the country it's a mess in central London it's a mess in the big institutions that are quite well funded and what will pay do I think what pay will do is if we win that pay rise our health workers will feel right we're valued We've been given a pay rise that, that will help deal with some of the problems, right? What else do we need to do to make sure that we've got an NHS that's fit for purpose? I want to read to you a tweet from Steve Barclay, so the health secretary. He says, the Royal College of Nurses is demanding a massive pay rise of 17.6%, an increase around three times the average settlement that millions of hardworking people outside the public sector are getting. So he is saying, you're, you're demanding more than your fair share. Where's your solidarity with the rest of the workforce who are accepting far lower pay rises than 17.6%? Well, I think everyone deserves a decent pay rise and everyone deserves to be able to heat their, their houses and um, eat properly you know, across their country. I mean, we're seeing strikes breaking out all across every area. And I've got to say now, as a health worker, we support the rail workers, we support the postal workers, we support the teachers going on strike, we support anyone fighting for decent pay. And I think it's rich from someone like Barclay who wouldn't have a clue what it's like to live on the salaries, not just nurses are existed on, but if you look at our porters and our cleaners. And of course, MPs, they've not been shy in taking pay rise after pay rise after pay rise in the NHS. And I tell you what, look at their, you know, look at the who's running the country at the moment. I think the man is twice as rich as the king. And, and Rishi Sunak, as a health worker, as a critical care nurse, we hold him personally responsible for the eat out to eat out to help out debacle and putting the, the brakes on a circuit breaker lockdown that directly led to tens of thousands of people in this country unnecessarily dying of COVID because of late lockdowns. So I think it's it's really rich when we're told by the rich that um, we can't, they can't afford to give us a decent pay rise. So solidarity with anyone else fighting for decent pay at the moment, but Barclay. Frankly, I mean, you know, he says his doors open. He's got to be really careful on the day that the RCN go out on strike that he's not visited. I want to end by asking a question somewhat separate from the strike. I know they've got sort of uh, common causes in a way. But this winter, lots of stories people will be reading about queues of ambulances, waiting times of over 12 hours, and a wave of flu and a new wave of COVID. Things could get worse. I mean, how, how worried should people be about the NHS this winter? Uh, Mike, I think we're past the point where we, as a pro healthcare professional, and we can turn around and say, and it's going to be fine, we'll do our best. You know, you're going to hear the corporate line from a lot of big trusts. And believe me, those big trusts will be trying everything in their power 
to ensure that when people arrive at our hospitals or when they need healthcare, healthcare is delivered. But the reality is we already can't deliver it. You know, we already can't deliver the operations. We're already seeing a crisis with ambulances. Um, we're already seeing the problems associated with not being able to do non-urgent care and even urgent care in certain circumstances. You know, there will be lots of your viewers whose families will have had operations cancelled because there aren't staff or there aren't beds. There aren't staff or there aren't beds. Repeat, repeat, repeat. So, I mean, I've been saying for a long time that I think there's a real problem with the NHS being able to deliver the core services. I'll tell you what you are seeing at the moment is you're seeing people that can go in private. For instance, you know, you're, you're, you're told you, you, you require a knee replacement. You're, you ask your consultant, well, okay, doc, you know, when can I have my knee replacement? Two and a half years, a friend of mine told me he was quoted by his consultant for a knee replacement. What happens is people are looking to take out loans, insurance, and they're going private. So what you're beginning to see now is the people that can afford to shifting the NHS into a two-tier type of operation where, you know, the NHS is left to try and deliver core services to people that can't afford the, the core services or can't afford to go private and people that can reluctantly having to use the private sector. And if you look at the amount of adverts there are on the, on the TV for loans, for healthcare requirements, booper hospitals, you know, come and see these wonderful places. You can see, you know, you can see a, a cancer specialist at a click of a finger. That's the reality of what our NHS is turning into. So when these stories about what's, you know, what's going to happen this winter, uh, you know, uh, are, are being wheeled out, the reality is, as well as people in A&Es, denied care, unable to get into the hospitals, dying, you know, because they can't access health care. There's another whole segment of people that will be turning away from the NHS reluctantly, indebting themselves so that they can get their family and their loved ones the care that required because the service at the moment is not fit for purpose. That was Dave Carr, a London-based critical care nurse, who I always really enjoy getting on the show incredibly articulate man. Um, Aaron, I know you have been preparing a video about the nurses' strike and nurses' pay. Do you have anything to, to add that we haven't covered already? So much, Michael. At the moment, only one in four nursing shifts are adequately staffed. So th three out of every four shifts, there aren't adequate staffing numbers. And according to NHS bosses, that is the number one reason, understaffing of nurses, as to why you're seeing 7 million waiting lists as to why you're seeing any waiting times being so terrible, as to why you're seeing, you know, these queues with regards to ambulances. That all stems from an insufficient number of nurses. One amazing statistic came out from the GMB union recently, Michael. One in three ambulance workers has experienced a patient dying with them because they couldn't process them quickly enough into hospital because of these cues to get into hospital, which, are, like I say, they find their route with inadequate numbers of nurses. What we're seeing in this country is a shortage of 47,000 nurses, partly, but overwhelmingly, actually, let's say, not just because of working conditions, but overwhelmingly because of falling real wages since 2010. If you're a nurse, you're a new nurse in this country, you now graduate with up to £54,000 worth of debt. And all the government is offering you since 2010, really, is you will get poorer every year. Now, you'd have to be an absolute fool to enter an industry where three every four shifts you're short-staffed, you graduate with £54,000 worth of debt, you'll get poorer every year, and most remarkably of all, there are six NHS trusts in the UK today which either have food banks or have voucher systems to feed their staff. You'd have to be an idiot, I think, to look at that. If you didn't know the, the social cachet and your contribution, 
to look at that as a set of numbers and go, you know what? I'm going to give three years of my life to study that 2000 hours of hands-on working sort of experience while you're training as a nurse. I'm going to do all that to, to get that outcome. I think very few people think that's a fair deal. And so if we want to alleviate the 7 million waiting list, the waiting time of an hour for, for an ambulance, or if we want to reduce times waiting in any, all of that goes back to nurses. Finally, yes, we've had large numbers of nurses joining. I mean, that was a graph. It shows more joining than leaving. Record numbers are leaving. But you think, well, that's also bad because we've got, you know, even more joining. The point is, increasingly, we are recruiting nurses from countries like Nigeria, Ghana, and Nepal. I mentioned those three because the World Health Organization has explicitly said that countries in the global north should not be recruiting nurses from these countries. That's just three. But increasingly, we, we effectively exploit the human capital when it comes to healthcare workers of countries in the global south because we're not willing to adequately pay nurses in this country and also pay for their training, right? Like I say, £54,000 worth of debt. So this to me is emblematic of a, a huge dysfunction in the NHS. And I know people mock it on the left every year. Oh, the NHS is about to collapse. You hear those statistics, 7 million waiting list, one hour ambulance waiting time, one in three ambulance drivers experience somebody dying on their shift when it's probably avoidable. It's because we're not giving nurses enough money. Therefore, we can't recruit enough of them. So I think in that context, give the Royal College of Nursing absolutely everything they want. Very well said. I can't wait for your video to come out. We will be coming back to nurses at the very end of the show as well. Let's go to our next story. Michelle Moan is a Tory peer put into the House of Lords by David Cameron. She made her £20 million fortune through various businesses, including the lingerie brand Ultimo. And she's married to a billionaire. Doug Barrowman is a Scottish businessman who made his money through property and investment management. But all that money wasn't enough for this super rich couple. And the pandemic proved the perfect opportunity for profiteering. A Guardian investigation has revealed that Moan lobbied ministers on behalf of a PPE company. PPE MedPro was run by a friend of her and her husband's, and Moan asked ministers to award a contract to it five days before it was even incorporated. The report goes on to say this. Lady Moan's support helped the company PPE MedPro secure a place in a VIP lane the government used during the coronavirus pandemic to prioritise companies that had political connections. It then secured contracts worth more than £200 million. Documents seen by The Guardian indicate tens of millions of pounds of PPE MedPro's profits were later transferred to a secret offshore trust of which Moan and her adult children were the beneficiaries. They state that Moan's husband, the Isle of Man-based financier Douglas Barrowman, was paid at least £65 million in profits from PPE MedPro and then distributed the funds through a series of offshore accounts, trusts and companies. So, in total, Moan and her children appear to have secretly received £29 million in PPE MedPro profits. And to add insult to injury, it also turned out that a lot of the PPE provided was useless. £122 million of the money paid to the company was for 25 million surgical gowns, which failed the government's quality checks. PPE MedPro has refused to return the funds, and the government is still trying to claw them back. So, which minister did Moan lobby for this disastrous deal? Well, it was none other than Michael Gove, who was chair of the COVID Response Committee. 
That's now raising questions about whether Gove bypassed formal channels to help moan out, which led to this awkward interview on Sky News this week. Well, during the pandemic, there were lots of people who were approaching us with offers of uh, PPE. Um, I referred all of them to uh, the appropriate civil service channels in order to make sure that the uh, PPE that we were being offered was of sufficient quality and could be sourced in time. It was uh, a procurement process which every offer went through in order to assess. But she did approach you with your personal email, no? Well, lots of people approached me. Um, um, and personal email? Uh, yeah, there were lots of people who approached me, whether it was through email, text, um, or, uh, or uh, 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 in the precincts of the House of Commons or wherever, to uh, uh, say that they could help us. Because, as you'll remember at the time, um, not just in the United Kingdom, um, but across Europe, uh, we needed to source PPE quickly. Um, and uh, anyone who approached me, I said, thank you very much and made sure that uh, their, uh, uh, their efforts to help were referred to the appropriate, officially run, independent channel to assess whether or not the PPE that they were offering um, was value for money. So what do you remember about the personal email that she sent you? Um, uh, that she was one of uh, a, a huge number of people who were approaching the government at the time, uh, who were... So you don't remember specifically her approaching you? Uh, I remember lots of people approaching me. Do you remember her specifically approaching you? Uh, I do remember. Um, the, the thing about um, uh, Baroness Moan is that, uh, 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 you know, uh, as you know, she's a strong personality. Um, but there were lots and lots of other people who approached me as well. Anyone who approached me, I thanked and then made sure that they went through the appropriate process so that anyone's claim was assessed not by me as an individual, but by an independent process. Okay, but what do you remember about her personal approach to you? What do you remember about that email? Uh, that I remember that she was uh, keen to ensure that uh, PPE, which the government needed at that time, was provided. The government has so far refused to publish correspondence between Moan and government ministers, which led Angela Rayner to table this urgent question in Parliament on Thursday. Last night, documents seen by The Guardian revealed that yet another case of taxpayers' money was wasted, a total failure of due diligence and a conflict of interest at the heart of government procurement. Mm -hmm. In May 2020, PPE MedPro was set up and given £203 million in government contracts after a referral from a Tory peer. It now appears that tens of millions of pounds of that money ended up in offshore accounts connected to the individuals involved. Profits made possible through the company's personal connections to ministers and the Tories' VIP lane that was declared illegal by the High Court. Yet ministers are still refusing to publish correspondence relating to the award of the MedPro contract because they say, Mr Speaker, the department is engaged in a mediation process. Can the minister today tell us if that mediation process has reached any outcome and what public funds have been recovered, if any? The government spokesperson in the Commons, Health and Social Care Minister Neil O'Brien, avoided answering that question in any meaningful way. But PPE MedPro has been under investigation by the National Crime Agency since earlier this year. As part of that investigation, Moan's Isle of Man mansion was raided in April. But Moan and Barrowman have always denied any wrongdoing. The Guardian reports this. A lawyer for Moan said, There are a number of reasons why our client cannot comment on these issues, and she is under no duty to do so. They go on. A lawyer who represents both Barrowman and PPE MedPro said that a continuing investigation limited what his clients were able to say on these matters, and he added, 
For the time being, we are also instructed to say that there is much inaccuracy in the portrayal of the alleged, quote, facts, and a number of them are completely wrong. They go on. Moan 51 and Barrowman 57 have, over the last two years, repeatedly insisted they had no involvement in PPE MedPro and no role in the process through which the company was awarded its government contracts. PPE MedPro has repeatedly refused to identify its mystery backers but denied it was awarded contracts because of company or personal connections to the UK government or Conservative Party. In January, the House of Lords launched an investigation into Moan's conduct, and Moan hasn't spoken publicly about the matter since then. That is, until yesterday, when she posted this on social media, don't believe everything you read or everything you think. Now, don't believe everything you read. I see that. Don't believe everything you think quite meta. I'm not sure what I think about that. Aaron, do you believe everything you think? Do I believe everything? <laughs> <laughs> I think every, uh, I think, I think maybe all that Botox she's using has gone to her head. Um, <laughs> it's obstructing uh, clear, clear thinking, but then maybe, you know, maybe, maybe she, yeah. So maybe she's kind of having doubts about her own thought process. Don't believe everything you think. <sighs> Bizarre. I mean, how, do, how does somebody like that become a lifelong legislator? This whole, this whole episode is just completely insane. I mean, I suppose it's a question for you, Mike, because I know you've been following the story quite, quite closely. We hear, we have over the last two years in particular, heard so many stories about elite level, quote unquote, corruption. I'm not going to, you know, insinuate she's done anything criminal because we don't know that. But clearly there are questions that need to be answered in this particular instance. But we've heard that so many times and yet there haven't really been massive implications for people. Do you think that might be different here or, or do you think that it'll just be a little slap on the wrist and we're talking about the story today and in 12 months time, nobody's going to be talking about Michelle Moan and PPE anymore? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I've, I, I haven't taken a line that's always been, you know, all the outrage about the PPE procurement. I haven't often got as outraged as other people have. And I say this because, you know, the argument is always made that procurement wasn't done properly. I'm like, well, you know, it was the start of the pandemic. It wasn't completely unforeseen circumstance. I mean, we can have a debate about whether or not they should have foreseen it. But I mean, it was, as a matter of fact, unforeseen. And they ended up doing a lot of things by WhatsApp and on the hoof. And I kind of have some sympathy for that. It doesn't strike me as completely unreasonable that one would have a VIP lane. I mean, obviously, it being called a VIP lane looks bad. I'm not sure if it was the government who called it that or if it was the press who called it that after the fact. But if you're asking for procurement, or if you're asking for people to, to offer you PPE who've never even made PPE, and remember, that's what we needed to happen, then it makes sense you say, well, we actually can vouch for this person. Because you could also call it a vouched for lane, right? So the existence of a vouched for lane, I don't think is particularly concerning in and of itself. I always thought with this story, though, what was more interesting was less the government processes and more these people who are completely exploiting the situation. So I, I don't think there was enough sort of populist anger about the people who were getting incredibly rich off the COVID pandemic, mm. basically by defrauding the state. And I think that matters not because, you know, I, I don't just want to make a villain of Michelle Moan, you know, she's just one of many people who, you know, don't seem, what can I say, honourable, don't seem particularly honourable, let's say. But there are a lot of people like that in the British ruling class, people who are, you know, out to exploit the public purse. Again, I, you know, I, I don't want to say I know who is guilty or not guilty in this case, but I mean, when you've got, I mean, just even these sentences that if, if profits are ever transferred to a secret offshore trust, I think you should have some questions and some concerns. And so I think that's very much what's happened here. I mean, you can make a broader point about having sort of like a neoliberal state, which is reliant on 
constantly procuring things from private individuals that you will end up with well, I don't want to say scammers again because you know there has been no judgment made, but it, it doesn't seem this was a particularly mutually beneficial transaction. It seemed like one party benefited a lot and we all got screwed over. So I suppose that's what I think about it. I think it's a window into sort of a particular class of, of people in Britain who are out or seem to be out for themselves and we're getting screwed over for whatever reason. Focusing on Michelle Moan though, because we do have a bit more information on her, she is a colourful character she recently paid more than £50,000 to settle a claim made against her for allegedly sending a racist text. The dispute began in 2019 when a yacht belonging to a friend of Moan's crashed into another yacht, guess where, in Monaco. A crew member died in the accident, but it was what Moan said to a passenger on the other yacht that got Moan into trouble. The man on the other yacht was called Richard Linton-Jones. He is a wealth manager who is of Indian heritage, which is relevant for the next part of the story. This is from The Times. Linton-Jones, who was a guest on the other boat, told the peer, in a WhatsApp, the peer being moan, in a WhatsApp exchange that his partner had been traumatized, adding, quote, I would prefer you back the F off. In Moan's alleged reply, she is said to have written, quote, you're a lowlife, a waste of a man's white skin, so don't give us your lies, you're a total disgrace, unquote. In other WhatsApp messages, Moan allegedly described Linton Jones's partner as a, quote, mental loony and a nutcase bird. Now, the article goes on to say this. Referring to the allegation in an Instagram post in December, Moan said, quote, since when did calling out a man on his actions, his entitled white privilege, constitute racism? Quite the opposite. The accusations I have read today against me are full of contradictions. She has also claimed that Linton Jones, who is of Indian heritage, has an appearance that is 100% white. In a previous statement, Baroness Moan says she is 100% not racist. It added, Baroness Moan and her husband have built over 15 schools in Africa in the past three years. I mean, there's not much to say about this story beyond, I mean, Aaron, what do you, what, what do you make of it? She seems to think that she's calling out someone's white privilege, even though they're of Indian heritage, by saying, you're a waste of a white man's skin. Is that ever a phrase that you would use as a as an anti-racist? What, what, what could that possibly mean that isn't a little bit racist? Well, I think the African schools one is quite funny as well, Michael. You know, it's like Cecil Rhodes. I, you know, this is the white man's burden. How could I be a racist? I've built all these schools. Well, actually, you know, discourse is around helping people in the global south because they're incapable of helping themselves. Yes, that is historically enmeshed within racist discourse. That's not to say that everybody who's built a school or helped fund a water well in sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia is a racist, but the idea that automatically that means you're not capable of race behavior is clearly absurd. Waste of a white man's skin. I'll be honest, I've, I've never heard anybody under 65 talk like that. I've, I've heard people of like my parents' generation talk like that. You, you don't hear it. So... Yeah, she doesn't strike me as a particularly nice person, Michael, I have to be honest. I remember, you know, everyone always talks about oh, the degrading of standards in politics. This was the caliber of person who was given a peerage by David Cameron. And this was supposed to be the competent sensibles handing out peerages left, right and center to people like this. So, I mean, I think that's kind of what we should learn from this. You know, not necessarily, all, you, you always have to fill out the proper forms, even in the middle of a pandemic, but don't assume that because someone has been vouched for by a Tory, they're going to be anything other than exploitative, let's say. That's probably fair. I can probably say exploitative, can't I, even if I can't say scammer. 
Let's go straight to our next story. Elon Musk won't stop tweeting batshit stuff on Twitter, which is a problem because he owns it. This was his latest exercise in policymaking by poll. So he tweeted this, should Twitter offer a general amnesty to suspended accounts provided that they have not broken the law or engaged in egregious spam? And over 3 million people have voted and 72% said yes. And therefore he replied, the people have spoken. Amnesty begins next week. Vox Populi, Vox Day. So everyone's everyone's coming back on unless they broke the law or engaged in egregious spam. Or that's what it seems like from that tweet. And obviously he is the man who can control that. The advertisers will presumably be going even quicker than they were already, but there we are. Um, There is one group of people that Musk seems to want off the app, though. Antifa. Um, So this is a slightly confusing exchange. So Rams Paul, who actually I don't have the background on, but he strikes me as a fairly alt-right fella from what he's tweeting. Twitter is reportedly nuking pedo accounts. This is eliminating much of Antifa Twitter. And then Elon Musk responds, removing child exploitation is priority number one. Please reply in comments if you see anything that Twitter needs to address. Now, of course, child exploitation should not be allowed on Twitter. I'm not sure what the connection to anti-fascists is supposed to be. In any case, concerns about Musk's overtly political management of the site will not be assuaged by another interaction he had this week. So Musk tweeted, what do you think of the culture war? Someone responds, I think the right needs to start funding more artists, filmmakers and writers instead of politicians and super PACs. You don't win a naval war without any ships and you can't win a culture war without any culture. We've been reacting too long. Time to go on the offensive. And then Elon Musk replies this. I am neither conventionally right nor left, but I agree with your point. The woke mind virus has thoroughly penetrated entertainment and is pushing civilization towards suicide. There needs to be a counter narrative. Now, Aaron, I don't normally like to spend too much time on this show focusing on the random tweets of random right-wing people on Twitter. But this is kind of different, isn't it? Because Elon Musk now owns Twitter, one of the most important platforms when it comes to political discourse, or probably the most important platform when it comes to political discourse. And it's now owned by, by this guy. I mean, what should we make of these particular outbursts and how, I suppose, open he is being at the moment about the quite strange places he is he is coming from sort of intellectually and politically well it's hugely important michael because it's one of the most influential media companies in the world and it's not a public limited company there are not shareholders right there cannot be you know a shareholder uprising at the annual general meeting and they would say actually as ceo uh, elon musk we don't think you're doing right by the workers or your conduct isn't up to our expectations that that can't happen because it's, it's not a public limited company. So first of all, you have this hugely important business in the hands of a select group of people, not just Elon Musk. He's the figurehead, really. And so I think it, inevitably, we are going to talk about him quite a lot. You know, it is important if Donald Trump is allowed to get back on Twitter and proceeds to tweet again. It is significant if Milo Yiannopoulos returns to Twitter and has a massive platform and once more can generate a media brand for himself. You know, that's a, that's a significant shift. So it is a huge story. And I just find it remarkable, Michael, that somebody who was born and raised in South Africa would be so dismissive of questions, scrutiny, and challenges from people from non-white backgrounds. You know, his mocking of the idea of, of woke and whatnot. 
I mean, you, you can have those as a personal opinion, but I think that the second that you're the CEO of a major company, which you know has what 350, 400 million regular users using it as an interface to discuss politics with others, I think you do have a certain level of responsibility. Personally, it's not your plaything, and I think if there were shareholders, they would tell him that he wouldn't be able to do this. But sadly, you know, there aren't shareholders, and he is. It is really, really concerning, and I think the left could really pay a great deal for this. You know, I said when he bought the company, Michael, that he was getting it for cheap. And I still believe that. And people are saying, well, Twitter's not worth $44 billion. He's got, you know, he's got screwed. He's an idiot. He's wasted loads of money. The amount of influence owning Twitter buys you over politics, not just in the US, basically across, you know, the whole of the Western world, a couple of other countries too, India, Japan, you have huge numbers of users in Japan. The amount of political and and social power he's accumulated from doing that, when he is worth, I mean, now he's worth a bit less than before. He's worth about 168 million dollars, but still, you know, it's it's a quarter of his his worth. He he, you don't need that much to live. He he earns so much every day. It doesn't matter. It is a really, really, really major problem, and I think it's going to get worse over time. I think, you know, the stuff about oh, Twitter's going to collapse. Archive your tweets. I, I don't think that's the main takeaway here. I think it's going to be a major challenge now to a lot of people, a lot of us on the left as well, and a lot of legacy media. I think he's going to be willing to platform and discuss things which legacy media often doesn't for, for, you know, for a good reason as well. Hugely, hugely interesting. Hugely interesting. You can only see him really going into a confrontation with maybe you know, the American government over this, a Biden administration. But reality, they've got bigger fights to get on with and they've got two years until the next election. So, yeah, interesting. And a huge story. Don't undersell it and don't think the guy's an idiot because personally, I don't think he is. I know we get lots of comments on the show every Friday when we talk about Elon Musk and everybody says, you know, he's well, well over his head. He doesn't know what he's doing. I wouldn't be so sure. I think he's got quite a clear agenda on this. I want to um, go to a, a sort of an analysis which was given on on Twitter, of course, um, about a week ago. It's got a lot of traction with people who are sort of in in favor of of what Elon Musk is doing on Twitter. So it's by Antonio Garcia Martinez. He's a former Facebook product manager turned tech commentator. And so this was his thread. What Elon is doing is a revolt by entrepreneurial capital against the professional managerial class regime that otherwise everywhere dominates, including and especially large tech companies. And that same PMCs, that's the professional managerial class, which includes the media, is treating it as an act of laissez-majest. I hope I pronounced that correctly. In Burnham's formulation, this new managerial class would supplant the former business-owning bourgeoisie and even capital itself as the elite ruling class. Most woke labor scandals in tech are an entitled middle management class at odds with founders. Elon simply defenestrating the entire HR regime, so human resources regime, the ESG, ESG grifters, I think that's probably equalities and... Not sure, actually. The Skittles hair people with mouse-clicking jobs who think themselves bold social crusaders rather than a parasitic weight around any organization's neck is an intolerable overturning of the social order. Twitter must fail after the purge of such a former elite, for if Twitter does not fail, if in fact it manages to emerge stronger than before, then what sort of example would this set for every other organization similarly captured by the elite? Unthinkable. Aaron, I wanted your take on that. Elon Musk as class warrior, sort of the the class of entrepreneurs and creators against the class of bureaucratic 
managers who are a sort of parasitic weight on the entrepreneurs. Is there anything persuasive going on here? Is this completely deluded? How seriously should we take this? Well, persuasive, no. Deluded, perhaps, but there's absolutely something to it. So this idea as well goes back really to Peter Drucker. You know, Peter Drucker is a theorist of management. He believes that management is a skill in and of itself and that it adds value to businesses. And, you know, they don't necessarily have to be workers making the product. They might not be the entrepreneurs who, you know, respond to consumer demand in new and innovative ways. There's something else, which is they're managing resources, they're managing people, they're managing innovation, and they're creating value through doing that. And that's a discernible skill. I agree with that, by the way. I think it's really important. When you in- engage with large organizations, you can see the value of good management. It's not to say all, all management should be there. Often you can cut a lot of fat. But good management is priceless in, in terms of establishing new working practices, protocols, upskilling people, immensely valuable. And what I think is happening with Musk is that he is taking a certain sort of ideological stand on this. It's part Ayn Rand. It's part just Silicon Valley ideology about the founder, the entrepreneur. You know, six guys in T-shirts can start a multi-billion dollar business. They can start the business, but they can't run it. Okay. And that's where management comes in. They can't run it for 10, 15, 20 years, like you see with Google, like you see with Facebook. Because if you want to have staff, retain staff, have maternity policies, don't discriminate against people from different racial backgrounds or disabilities. You need to have management processes. And what's clear is that a certain subset of Silicon Valley who are obsessed with founder ideology, effectively Ayn Rand libertarianism, as I've said, they think that that is acting, that management ethos is acting as a sort of dead weight upon them creating new value. And there was one tweet I saw, which was really instructive in this regard, Michael. It was saying all the digital products you use are from the 2000s, not from the 2010s. So Facebook, Google, YouTube, obviously acquired by Google, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, all all created in the 2000s. And that's because in the 2010s, people sort of, you know, these all became bloated companies. There was lots of ESG, which stands for environmental, social, and governance, basically corporate social responsibility. And actually, people stopped doing the hard yards of creating new value, creating new businesses, responding to consumer demand in new ways because they brought in loads of managers with blue hair who wanted to ensure that people didn't work, you know, 100 hours a week. And I, I just think that analysis de- is dead wrong. Firstly, there are many companies that were created in the 2010s. I mean, Elon Musk started Tesla before them, but it becomes a mainstream business by the during the 2010s. Other ones too, of course, you know, TikTok or Figma or, I don't know, Notion, Slack. There's lots of platforms people use that were created in the 2010s. But the reason why you don't get the same kind of burst of energy is two things, I think. Easy money, because of quantitative easing, and monopolies. So realistically, when you have a business like Facebook, a business like Google, a business like Amazon, because they have such an extraordinary amount of market share, you don't get competition, you don't get new innovation. So I think they've got the completely wrong understanding of why there's not been loads of innovation coming out of Silicon Valley in the last 10 years. It's more about easy money and monopolies and oligopolies than it is about, you know, the woke mind virus and and management taking over. Finally, and this is something I do worry about, you know, Michael, I wrote a book about fully automated luxury communism. I think that leisure time is a really important thing for people. In the early 2010s, late 2000s, you had a book by a guy called Tim Ferriss, The 4-Hour Workweek, Live the Life of the New Super Rich which was basically, how do you become as productive as possible? How do you create processes whereby, yeah, you can, you can work a couple of hours a day, you know, four hours a week was a bit you know, polemical, but a few hours a day, and actually 
you can work a 20, 25 hour week and you can live a really good life. And that was the kind of dream for lots, lots of people in and around the ambit of Silicon Valley. How can I you know, maximize revenues and not work as hard as maybe I have done for the last five, 10 years? And Elon Musk is saying, no four hour work week, no 40 hour week. I want you to sleep at work. And that is a real shift. Part of the utopianism of Silicon Valley was tied up that, with the idea that we would engage in leisure activities in, in new ways. We would make connections and networks with people in, in different ways that were unprecedented. And what Elon Musk is explicitly saying is, come work at Twitter and I'll work you to death, right? He's explicitly responding, and this is quite a new thing, the idea of a, a four-day week, or the idea that actually we probably need to encourage better um, standards and pay for women to have children, right? Because maternity care and maternity pay is just, it's just not good enough. Or the fact that we should end discrimination against certain parts of the labor market. You know, he is now responding to all of that and saying, that's all bullshit. I don't want anything to do with it. So actually, the success of Twitter under him, if he does incorporate those attitudes I've just mentioned, I think that's a major, major moment. I do think it's a major moment. And it's part, I think, of a broader reaction from a subset of the capitalist class in the United States, a very powerful part of it, right? The Silicon Valley types against a revived workers' movement, revived ideas of democratic socialism, revived ideas of, of social liberalism, which have taken on new facets in the last decade in the US. But I think that's part of a broader insurgent left. Musk is responding to all of that. And I've never been one to really demonize a particular individual. I don't know how useful that is. But actually, his ownership of this particular company, you know, we, we on the left try to think of big processes. But I actually think when you're talking about individuals making choices, this could be a major inflection point for how American capitalism views itself. Let's go to our final story. On the day, the Royal College of Nurses announced the first strike across England, Wales and Northern Ireland in its 106-year history, a nurse laid into the government on BBC Question Time. Funders properly make nursing and clinical, uh, well, and health and social care generally a good profession that's well paid with good working conditions. We want to be proud of our profession. I've just voted to strike and that was hard. That was a really difficult decision. Language like holding the country to ransom and things. I don't want to strike, but we've been waiting for jam tomorrow for decades now, and it hasn't come. Thank you. Anthony, there is a fundamental thing here. We have a population that is aging. 44% of public spending is going, 44% of public spending yeah. is going to the NHS more than ever before, more than more per head, that even real terms than ever before. It's just trying to match that need is really difficult, which is why social okay. care reform is so I'm important. really sorry we are out of time. I think the point you also make is you feel insulted by, by suggesting you're holding the country around. And I think I that's... I don't want to strike. Okay, we hear you. But I need more money. <laughs> we all, all nurses, care workers, doctors, we need to be able to lead reasonable lives without having to strike. So pay us, please, what we deserve. So the reference there to holding the country to ransom, that was something a, a, a separate audience member said in the programme. That was, I think, about um, the rail workers striking. It's a phrase, though, that government ministers have liked to use too. Aaron, I mean, the, the applause that nurse got, I mean, very well justified, 
very well warranted. I think that might scare the government. What do you think? I think so. And the polling indicates that there's massive support actually for, for nurses going on strike. This is the first strike in the history of the Royal College of Nursing in 106 years. Incidentally, they didn't even back the idea of industrial action until 1995. You know, they basically weren't even a trade union in, in some ways of understanding it until the mid-1990s. So the idea that they would do this flippantly and they're always on strike and that they're work shy. By the way, I think they'll still try and say this, Tory politicians in certain parts of legacy media, but very hard to swallow when they've literally never gone on strike before. Again, talking about what's just happened in that, to their pay, you know, by the end of next year, because of course, they've seen their pay fall by 10% since 2010. You've got inflation this year of 9%. The pay deal they're getting is really about 4 to 5%. And then, of course, you've got the government offering a pay rise across the public sector in 2023 of just 2%. You know, they're looking at their real pay being 20% lower than in 2010. And the facts are, more and more nurses will leave. And in the medium to long term, we will just not be able to recruit people. And so we have to pay them more. If we want an NHS, we're going to have to pay nurses more. And I thought she put that really well. Finally, I've said it already, but I'll say it again. You know, one alarming statistic on this, Michael, is that there are six NHS trusts in the UK which either have food banks at work or offer a voucher system whereby nurses can get food, which is, you know, effectively food bank food, just procedurally done quite differently. I mean, you'd think that's a sign to the government, Michael. The average nurse now is graduating with £54,000 worth of student debt. They're having to sometimes use food banks. And the promise they're getting from the government is to just get permanently poorer year after year and have wage rises below inflation. You will not be able to recruit people into the NHS if you do that. They can run all the adverts they like, you know, that look like Love Actually. If Richard Curtis is trying to promote the NHS, this is what it would be. They do those, it seems now, every Christmas. That's not adequate. They should stop doing it, put the money towards paying nurses the amount they deserve, frankly. Here, here. Solidarity with any nurses watching. We will definitely be covering the strike all throughout December because it matters, you know, to all of us because the NHS matters to all of us. I think this could be very significant as well when it comes to sort of the general discussion about pay rises. Well, I don't even want to say pay rises. Again, workers fighting against real terms pay cuts, which is what all of these strikes are at the moment. Aaron Bastani, I will let you get off to watch England versus the USA. Thank you for joining me this evening. A pleasure as always. My pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much. And thank you for watching. We'll be back on Monday at the normal time of 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.